I next met with Dr. Hagop Kantarjan to discuss ASCO papers in CML and some other areas. And to begin, he commented on CML. There were several studies that updated the frontline results of the second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors comparing to imatinib. And these have shown continued benefit for the second-generation TKIs in relation to the early surrogate endpoints of long-term survival, namely the incidence of complete cytogenetic major molecular response as well as complete molecular response. In addition, there were updates on the newer generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors. In particular, an important one is ponatinib, which is a third-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's effective not only against the wild-type and the mutant CML, but also it's effective against T315I mutation, and the results of that study looked very promising. So maybe we can talk about a few of the specific presentations, focusing on the decision trial, looking at disatinib and imatinib. This was three-year follow-up, and you were part of this effort. What was the message that came out of this? The message is a consistent one, which is that the satinib as second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor is giving us better results than the current standard of care, which is imatinib. So the study is a randomized trial of the satinib 100 milligrams orally daily versus imatinib at the standard dose of 400 milligrams daily. And they updated the results, demonstrating that with the long-term follow-up, the adverse events persist to be the same. So in general, the satinib is less toxic than imatinib in terms of the chronic bothersome toxicities such as edema, weight gain, muscle cramps, and so on. But there are two notorious problems, which are pleural effusions as well as thrombocytopenia. But what they demonstrate is that the pleural effusions are mostly mild to moderate and manageable. What they also show is that the cumulative incidence of major molecular response, which is quite important, continues to be favoring the satinib with a difference in the incidence of major molecular response of about 20%. They also update the results in terms of deeper levels of molecular response, what we call MR4, which is a four-log reduction of the burden of the disease, and MR4.5, which essentially is undetectable levels. And what they show, again, is that in this study, the satinib offers significantly higher rates of four-log reduction of the molecular disease as well as undetectable disease. From the clinical point of view, it's important to note that the incidence of clinically important events such as transformation to accelerated or blastic phase at three years continues to favor the desatinib over imatinib. So in general, the update of the decision trial is reassuring in the sense that it shows that desatinib as a second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors on average is superior to the current standard of care, which is imatinib. Now, the other big trial that we've heard about, and you presented at ASCO again, Abstract 6509, the ENIST ND study, again, three-year follow-up. Any new messages coming out of this? The messages from the ENAST-ND study are, again, positive, and in fact, it looks overall that nilotinib compared to imatinib is offering a significant 
advantage not only in terms of the surrogate endpoints, but also in terms of the disease transformation. So to remind the listeners, INEST-ND is a study that randomized patients with newly diagnosed CML to either imatinib 400 milligrams daily or one of two schedules of nilotinib, the standard dose 400 milligrams twice a day, or nilotinib 300 milligrams twice a day. What this study shows is a continuous benefit for either of the two schedules of nilotinib compared to imatinib. We updated the results of the cumulative incidence of major molecular response for log reduction and elimination of the disease, and the study still shows a significant advantage for the two schedules of nilotinib compared with imatinib. In particular, when we look at the four-and-a-half log reduction, it appears to be twice as frequent with nilotinib, and that's important because if we are going to look at the possibility of elimination of the disease or what we refer to as a complete molecular response and the possibility of discontinuing therapy, it looks like nilotinib could do a better job than imatinib in that regard. Also, the effect of nilotinib is not restricted to a particular risk group. The benefit is across the SOCA risk groups. We looked also at the incidence of mutations, and in this particular study, it appears that nilotinib therapy is associated with a lower incidence of all mutations in general, but also a lower incidence in the problematic mutations. And from your point of view, do you see any advantage of nilotinib versus disatinib? I think in the frontline setting, nilotinib appears to have less of the significant side effects, so it's not associated with pleural effusions. And with the longer-term follow-up, it appears that nilotinib continues to have a definite advantage versus imatinib in the incidence of the depth of molecular responses and transformation. We cannot compare nilotinib to desatinib because they haven't been done in the context of one trial, but it looks like nilotinib is an extremely safe drug and a highly effective drug in patients with newly diagnosed CML. How about abstract 6510, looking at the prognostic significance of early molecular and cytogenetic response? Investigators are looking at earlier parameters of response that would allow the patient and the physician to try to predict the outcome of the patients on a particular therapy, as well as to potentially change therapy. So one of the new prognostic or predictive factors is the PCR level at three months. And there are several studies that show that patients who reach levels of BCR-ABLE less than 10%, which is equivalent to a partial cytogenetic response, usually do better. Now, if a patient is on imatinib and has levels above 10%, then it's natural that the patient or the treating physician would consider changing therapy to a second-generation TKI. On the other hand, if you have a patient on a second-generation TKI who does not reach these levels, then it is difficult to conceive what the change would be, except if we decide to add some additional form of therapy or try to refer to a transplant. But remember that the survival of patients who fail to achieve levels of less than 10% remains excellent. So changing to analogenic transplantation may be too early. It is also my opinion that 
the three months response may be a bit too early and perhaps we could look at a combined evaluation of the three and six months response. So in reality, if a patient has not achieved quantitative PCR levels of less than 10% at three to six months, these are patients where we should consider a change of therapy or monitoring them carefully. If we're using a second generation TKI frontline, then we have to achieve a complete cytogenetic response by three to six months. So we see the responses earlier and therefore we could intervene in case we don't have those levels of good responses. So there were a couple of papers presented on the TKI basutinib 6512 and 6511. Can you comment on those? Bosutinib, as you know, is a second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So it is similar to desatinib in the context of its efficacy. It has undergone studies in both the salvage and the frontline setting. And unfortunately, in the frontline setting, it did not meet the primary endpoint, which was the 12-month incidence of complete cytogenetic response. But with all other respects, this drug is quite effective. So while we do not anticipate an FDA approval in the frontline setting, we think that bosutinib could still get an approval for the salvage setting, and perhaps in Europe, it might get an approval in the frontline setting. Bosutinib is an important second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It has a nice safety profile except for the incidence of diarrhea, which is self-limited. And I think having it available will allow a broader range of TKIs that the patients could use if they fail other TKIs or are intolerant to the other TKIs. Any hints that came out of this abstract or this poster 6511 in terms of bosutinib's tolerability in older patients? In general, bosutinib is well tolerated even in the older patients. As I mentioned, the one side effects that physicians may not be familiar with and worry about is the diarrhea, but the diarrhea in general is self-limited. So this is a drug that could be potentially quite effective in older patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, as are some of the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors that we mentioned, like nilotinib. What about panotinib? That's another TKI. There was an abstract 6503 looking at the PACE study. I think Ponatinib is the new breakthrough in chronic myeloid leukemia. As I mentioned, this is quite a powerful pan-BCR-able tyrosine kinase inhibitor. We had completed the phase one studies that defined the dose to be 45 milligrams orally daily, and the dose-limiting toxicity was pancreatitis. So we embarked on a large phase two study that, in fact, accrued about 450 patients in a one-year period. And the patients were divided into the CML phase, so chronic, accelerated, or blastic. And within that, by whether they had a T315I mutation or whether they were simply resistant or intolerant to at least two or three TKIs. What this study shows, which is very impressive and very encouraging for the patients and the oncologists, is that when we look at patients with chronic phase CML, Overall, and these patients have failed two to three TKIs, overall we can achieve a complete cytogenetic response in 45% of the patients and a major cytogenetic response in 55% of the patients. And with about a one-year follow-up, more than 90% of those 
major cytogenetic responses are persistent. There is also a cohort of 64 patients that had a T315I mutation and had failed in chronic phase, and in those, the incidence of complete cytogenetic response is even higher than the average population. It's 66%, and the major cytogenetic response rate is 70%. So this is a drug that's very powerful. We hope that it will get an FDA approval within the next year. And then the question is whether we can move it in the setting of first salvage therapy or even in the frontline setting. And there are studies which have been designed and are opening up now in the United States comparing ponatinib to imatinib in the frontline setting. It's really amazing. You got 450 patients. This is an international study? This was an international study, and I think the excitement to enter these patients on the study is because the drug is such a powerful one. There's another abstract 6513 about an agent. I don't really know anything about subcutaneous omacetaxane. I see you're involved with that also. What is it and what did you find? So omacetaxine is the hiding name for a drug that you probably know very well, homoherringtonin. So this is a drug that was imported from China in the 80s and was developed for acute myeloid leukemia. And then we found that the drug is active in CML, but there was an unfortunate course of event for this drug, which is fortunate also because what happened is the tyrosine kinase inhibitors came about and people were so excited about them that the development of this drug was neglected. Finally, we were able to complete a pivotal trial in patients who have failed multiple treatments, including tyrosine kinase inhibitors, And the drug is an active one. It has an incidence of a major cytogenetic response rate of about 30%, complete in about 20%. Those responses are durable, and the survival of the patients is good. And the drug is effective also against patients with T315I mutation. So the file for the drug has been submitted to the FDA. We're hoping that if we get an FDA approval, In the context of CML, we can use the drug to eradicate minimal residual disease, and omacetaxine appears to be also quite active in the setting of AML and myelodysplastic syndrome, so it could have a much broader role in the context of curing CML as well as in other hematologic malignancies. And what's the mechanism of action? It is a protein synthesis inhibitor, and in that context, it was found also to suppress as well as to induce apoptosis in the BCR-able oncoprotein. So maybe you can comment a little bit about ALL, an area that's getting really exciting. A couple abstracts, oral presentations, 6500, looking at blenitumumab, and then 6501 that you were involved with with your colleague, Dr. Jabor, looking at inotuzumab ozogenomycin. In acute lymphocytic leukemia, I think we're witnessing probably potential revolution in the treatment of these patients. And to paraphrase it, my belief is that in the next five years, we are going to see a significant improvement in the cure rate of adults with ALL by combining these monoclonal antibodies with chemotherapy. So in a brief background context, the Acute lymphocytic leukemia cells express markers that can be targetable. So they express CD19, which is targetable with blenotumumab, and they express CD22, which is targetable with inotuzumab. The first drug, blenotumumab, is what we call 
a monoclonal antibody that has two arms. So one arm catches the leukemia cell through attaching to CD19, and the other arm catches a CD3 killer cell by binding to the CD3. And when the binding happens, there's a joining of the T cell to the leukemia cell, and the T cell kills the leukemia cell. So this is, in simple terms, how blinatumumab, which is called a biallelic monoclonal antibody, works. So it's kind of like immunotherapy? Exactly. So this is the ultimate form of immunotherapy. And in my recollection, the only form of immunotherapy that has worked at a high rate in patients with active disease. So people could think, for example, of the immune therapy in melanoma. But remember, in melanoma, the response rate is low, although those responses are durable. So blinotumumab provides the ultimate example of immunotherapy that kills active cancer at a high rate, with a high response rate. Can I just ask, are there other examples of the so-called bispecific T-cell engaging antibodies? I think people are working on them because the engagement could happen not only against CD19, but it can happen, for example, against myeloid cells, or it could happen against solid tumor cells. And the company which is developing the blinatumumab micromat has plans for development of the additional bispecific monoclonal antibodies that could attack other cancer cells, including acute myeloid leukemia cells, but also potentially solid tumor cells. What was found there? So this is a very important study because it is a prelude to the potential of an FDA pivotal study. What the investigators have done is to give the blinotumumab as a continuous infusion over four weeks, and this can be repeated every six weeks. So the treatment is a continuous infusion four weeks on, two weeks off, which is cumbersome because the patients have to be around and you have to change the bags and so on. Nevertheless, what the investigators have shown is that in the context of patients with ALL who have a refractory relapse leukemia, so these are patients who have failed several lines of chemotherapy, what they found is that they could induce complete marrow response rates in about 70% of the patients. So in the total cohort of 36 patients that they report on, they find that 26 patients or 72% achieve either a complete remission or a marrow-complete remission. And in fact, 16 or 44% have achieved a true complete remission. So this allows the patients to move to allogeneic transplantation. And what they found in the updated study is that those remissions can be quite durable and the average survival of the patients is about nine months when historically these patients have lived on average two to three months. So this is a very active drug. I really believe that it is going to play a major role in the treatment of adults and perhaps children with acute lymphocytic leukemia, allowing us to eliminate residual disease, but also possibly combine it with chemotherapy to reduce the need for chemotherapy or eliminate the need completely if we can use cocktails of monoclonal antibodies. So I think the concept is revolutionary in the treatment of acute lymphocytic leukemia. It's really fascinating. What's the rationale for the continuous infusion? I'm not sure I've seen that with a monoclonal antibody before. 
The rationale is mostly the clinical experience. The drug has been around for more than a decade, and originally it was used as short infusions over two and three days and a week, and the results were not as good. So the possible rationale is you probably need the monoclonal as a continuous policing system in the blood and the bone marrow to keep catching a leukemia cell getting it close to a killer T cell. And once you kill that leukemia cell, the monoclonal is released and it goes again policing around looking for the next leukemia cell and killing it. So in the clinic, perhaps the continuous infusion schedule is needed for the continuous policing approach. But also in the future, we may look at shorter infusion schedules, keeping in mind that the short infusion schedules of three to seven days may not have worked well in the past. And this is well-tolerated? I see there was some pyrexia. There are some side effects, but they are well-tolerated. And in the context of the high complete response rates, those are minor. So we see what's called the cytokine release syndrome, which is probably an effect of killing the leukemia cells. And we do see some occasional patients who develop seizures. So in the study, three of the 36 patients develop seizures, and then you can put them on anti-seizure medications give them steroids, reduce the dose, and then they can continue on the treatment. We see a bit of an encephalopathy, irritability, fatigue, but when you get a marrow response rate of 70% in a refractory relapsed ALL setting, those side effects become quite minor. So how about CD22 and inutuzumab? The inotuzumab is another very exciting development. So this is a more classical monoclonal antibody that targets CD22, and it is attached to a toxin, which is calichiamycin, which is the same toxin that gemtuzumab ozogomycin has, the mylotark. So it's an antibody drug conjugate? That's correct. So with the inotuzumab, we initially piloted a study using the lymphoma dose schedule of 1.8 milligrams per meter square every three weeks, and we had completed a study in about 50 patients where we showed a marrow CR rate of 50%, and this was already published in Lancet Oncology. The preclinical studies had suggested that a lower dose weekly exposure could be more effective and also could produce less side effects. So what we did is to take the total dose per course and we divided it into three weekly dosages of 0.8 milligrams per meter square day one, then 0.5 milligram per meter square day eight and day 15. And so far we have about 30 patients on this study. We show again a high marrow complete response rate, 52%. And we show that those responses are genuine and true because we find that most of the patients with cytogenetic abnormalities also achieve a complete cytogenetic response, and about 50% of the patients achieve minimal residual disease or negative residual disease by multi-parameter flow cytometry. In the context of this population, the median survival was seven months, and the response duration was five months. And what we find with the new schedule is that the incidence of liver function abnormalities, which was in the range of about 40%, severe in 15% with the single dose infusion schedule. Now, the severity has gone down to 7%, and we have not seen yet VODs in the context of the patients who have moved to transplant. So again, this is a drug that's highly active, very safe, easy to deliver as short infusions once a week, 
and we started studies combining the drug with chemotherapy in older patients with ALL, and we're going to put proposals to combine it also in younger patients with ALL in the frontline setting.